Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. While you're turning there, I want to start with a, a little illustration. So I went to a, a Christian college for my undergrad, and uh, they required that we had to attend chapel twice a week. They had chapels on Tuesdays and on Thursdays, and so we were required to attend chapel. And uh, one chapel service, there was a professor who was sitting up front because he was supposed to be giving announcements that day. We did announcements at the end of service instead of at the beginning, and so he was going to be doing announcements. But the president of the college got up and said, and now I'd like Dr. Hunter to come up here and close us in a word of prayer. Now, I looked at the professor, and he started to look a little bit nervous because he knows he's supposed to be doing announcements, but his boss, the president of the school, just told him to come and do a closing prayer, and so in his brilliance, he decided that he would pray his announcements, okay? So he got up, and he's like, we thank you, Lord, that uh, next week is finals week, and the students can take their finals from 7 a.m. to noon, right? Dear God, we ask that you'd have the students stop shaking the vending machines to try to get free soda, these kind of things. And we were all trying so hard not to laugh out loud. Like we're doing that kind of laugh thing where you're not making any sound, but you're shaking. That's what we're doing because these two different genres had been blended together to create something very, very strange, okay? A genre is a type of communication or a type of literature. If you've been with us here at Parkway over the past few years, we've been working through the book of Romans uh, for somewhere between one and a half to two years. Romans is a letter. It's an ancient letter known as an epistle. So typically the lines are shorter and it's very to the point and it's very theological. Well, as we've started our Jonah series, we started that last week, Jonah is a very different type of literature, okay? Jonah is this kind of prophetic narrative. And so what you have to do is you have to see what's taught in the story and you have to pull out what God is wanting you to pull out from that story. So you'll notice this is a long text today. It's a little bit different just because it is a different genre. But with that in mind, let's pray and then we will end up getting into this text. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your grace and just ask that you would guide us. We thank you for your word, that you've told us who you are and how we might be saved through Christ. I pray uh, a blessing over everybody here, whatever they might be struggling with, whatever fears or anxieties or illnesses or struggles or whatever it may be. I just pray that you give us grace. We want to ask it all in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, look with me in verses 4 through 5a. Again, we got a lot of text, so we got to work through it quickly. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea... And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Do you like that personification of the ship? In Hebrew, it literally says the ship seriously considered breaking apart. It's thinking, oh man, these wind and these waves, I can't hold it together. I'm a ship and I'm going to break apart, okay? First part of verse 5. Then the mariners, those are the sailors, were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship uh, uh, into the sea to lighten it for them. Let's start with verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The first thing that you need to understand is this is no mere storm. This is seen specifically as an act of God's judgment. We saw last week that Jonah is this prophet, and he is called to go to Nineveh in Assyria, and he is to, 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 to call them to repentance, to tell them to repent. Instead of doing that, Jonah gets on a ship and heads to a place called Tarshish. We don't know where Tarshish is, but here's what we do know. It's not in Nineveh, okay? It is the opposite direction of Assyria, and so he is walking in high-handed rebellion and disobedience towards God, and he is trying to run away, and then all of a sudden, the sea and the water start to swirl. Now, that doesn't stress us out a ton. We live in Texas. We get storms all the time, but you have to understand, for a Jew, the ocean is extremely scary, okay? 
the Jews don't do water. They're kind of like cats in the Old Testament, okay? They, they don't do water. You've heard of swimmers like Michael Phelps or Ryan Lochte. You've never heard of like Mordecai Goldstein, the great Jewish swimmer or something like that. That's not what they do. Why? Because in the Bible, the ocean, the sea, the water is seen as something that's scary. It's seen as something that's chaotic. It's seen as something that is used as judgment. Let me give you a few examples. Imagine, again, that you are a Jew reading Jonah for the first time. You know that in the creation narrative, the waters are tumultuous, and it's God's Spirit who has to hover over the waters to bring peace to them. You know the story of Noah. What does God do there? He uses the water, the sea, to kill everybody but Noah and his family, okay? The water is scary. It's judgment. You know the story of the Israelites being taken out of Egypt, and how does God strike Pharaoh and his army? Through the sea. He has the sea collapse back upon them. As a Jew, you know all these stories, right? In Job 38, it's God who has to tell the sea that your proud waves can come this far and no further. The sea is seen as this chaotic, hard-to-control thing. Additionally, if you're a Jew, the idea of the ocean or the sea might be mixed with Canaanite mythology. Okay? The different nations around Israel believed a bunch of weird things about the sea and their gods. They had a sea god named Yom, which means sea. They had another sea god named Dagon that you read about in the historical literature in the Old Testament. Uh, in Psalms, Isaiah, and elsewhere, Job, there's this creature named Leviathan. Maybe you've wondered what Leviathan is. Leviathan is this Canaanite sea demon. It's this Canaanite sea god. They have another god of the sea named Rahab. You read about that in the Psalms. The woman from Jericho, who's the prostitute, her name is Rahab, and she is named after this sea demon, okay? Not only in the Old Testament, though, do you see this with the sea, but in the New Testament. Think specifically in the book of Revelation. The sea gives up their dead. Rome promotes its idolatrous trade on the sea. The beast in Revelation comes from where? The sea. When it's describing the new heavens and new earth, it says that the sea will be no more. Now, that doesn't mean that like Jesus hates the beach. That's not the point. The idea is that all the scary things that the sea stands for in the Bible, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, what is chaotic and unruly will be no more. Imagine being a Jew 3,000 years ago and you go out on your little fishing boat, right? It's a sunny day. You think, man, I cannot wait to catch some fish. And all of a sudden, you see a giant squid, okay? That is a monster to you, okay? That is going to freak you out. You don't have National Geographic. You don't have the internet. That is going to terrify you. You see a whale. You see a manta ray. You see a shark. You see a jellyfish, and that will freak you out. That's what the Bible actually means when it says sea monsters. It uses that phrase several times. It doesn't mean like Nessie like the Loch Ness Monster. Monsters aren't real, just in case your parents didn't tell you. Uh, it means these scary sea creatures that the Jews knew very little about because, uh, you know, you couldn't do a whole lot in trying to catch whales uh, back then. So, with all that in mind, notice that Jonah is running from God. Notice that Jewish background, and then all of a sudden, God starts to turn up and churn up the waters of the sea. It starts to bring an element of terror and fear to this story. Now, let me show you this. This is Second Chronicles twenty thirty-seven. This is where God is pronouncing a judgment, and he says, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go where? To Tarshish. Are there other places in the Bible where God uses the sea to judge people by wrecking ships so that they can't go to Tarshish? Yes. Does that sound anything like what we're doing today? It does. Okay? Now look at the first part of verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it 
for them. Here's what I want you to see. There are three steps the idolatrous, broken human heart takes when we confront our own mortality and fear of death and when we confront God's wrath, okay? All humans are born with this innate kind of fear of death. That's why we make scary movies. That's why we don't want to get cancer. That's why we don't want to die. There's this innate fear that one, we're going to die, and two, that we have somehow offended God. We have somehow offended God. You see that here with the mariners. They realize something's off with this storm, and they start to become afraid. That's step one. Step two is because of our sin, we create man-made religion. We create superstition. Notice the next step here. They're afraid that they're going to die. By the way, if your ship breaks up, there's no Coast Guard. There's no radioing for help in this era. You just die, okay? So they're afraid of dying. They're afraid of the wrath of God. So step one is they cry out to their idols. They do man-made religion and man-made superstition, which, by the way, every religion other than orthodox, historic, biblical Christianity is man-made. It is superstition. Mankind will not naturally be an atheist. You have to teach man to be an atheist. No culture has ever arisen where mankind is naturally atheistic. Mankind by nature is a worshiper, but the problem is when we're afraid, we worship the wrong thing. That's step two. Step three is when their gods don't deliver them because they're fake and they're idols and they can't, they then turn to legalism. They turn to self-effort. They say, my gods haven't saved me, so I will save myself. And they start jettisoning cargo to try to lighten the load of their ship. Notice this interesting step, this interesting progression here. Now, that's not the main point of verse 5. Verse 5 is just transitional to get you to a further point in the story. But I do want you to see what's going on spiritually and psychologically. They're afraid of dying. They fall back into man-made religion. When that doesn't work, they move to human self-effort. That is always what happens in the human heart when we do not find our security, our salvation, our peace in Christ. Now, look again at uh, the end of verse 5 here. Or the uh, first part, I'm sorry, of verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Why are they throwing their cargo out of the ship? Let me just explain it as simply as I can. I love playing games in the pool. I love the summer. There's hot dogs and baseball and swimming and all that's super fun. There are three games that I love to play in the pool in particular. The first is water volleyball. Amen? I got a few people to amen on water volleyball. That's pretty good. Okay. Water volleyball. Why? Because you get to play volleyball, but it doesn't hurt when you dive for the ball. You just get to fall in the water. It's excellent. Okay? The second game that I play is this game. If I'm standing around with friends, I'll say, does this water smell kind of funny? Does it smell like there's some chemicals or something in it? And as soon as they put their head down, I just dunk them underwater, okay? <laughs> kind of nacho libre baptism style underwater. That's a fun game for me. The third game that I play, and we played this a lot as kids, is this. One person gets on a raft or some sort of little floaty, and the other person tries to knock them off the raft. You ever play that game? It's a ton of fun. Here's the difference, though. When you get older, the rules have to change. And so if I'm ever playing that game now as an adult, if I'm playing with, uh, you know, my kid or somebody else, I will simply get out of the pool go and just jump on the raft and the person, and that weight will just bring everybody under the water and I win, okay? The game becomes a lot simpler. Why? Because when there's more weight on that, it is hard to keep it from going under the water. That's what's going on with them jettisoning their cargo, okay? They realize the heavier they are, the easier it is for the boat to take on water, the easier it is for the waves to crash over the side, and there is a real risk of drowning. Now, here's why I tell you this. Some scholars think, and I'm not sure this is right, but I do think that it's interesting. What some scholars think here is that one of the things they're throwing overboard is their idols. Idols are heavy. Idols are typically made of metal. They've already cried out to their gods, and their gods have not heard them. So what some people think is going on is they're throwing out cargo, heavy cargo, 
but some of that cargo might indeed be their idols. Now let's look at verses 5b, second half of verse 5 and verse 6. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now in verse 5b, it says that Jonah was fast asleep. And that phrase is actually a little bit stronger in Hebrew. It literally means that he was in a deep sleep or a hypnotic sleep. Now, there's two thoughts that kind of uh, revolve around why it talks about Jonah sleeping. How is he sleeping during a big storm? How is this going on? Here are the two thoughts. One school of thought says he's just sleeping. Don't read too much into the story. The story's already cut down. The whole story didn't happen in the 20 minutes it takes you to read Jonah. So one view just says it's not an important detail. Another view says that the reason that Jonah might be asleep, he might be in a deep sleep, he might not even be waking up even though this storm is happening, is because he might be depressed. To run from God, to run from the loving companionship and fellowship that we have with Christ leads to sorrow, it leads to anxiety, it leads to depression. Sleep is good, even a lot of sleep is good, but some people even use sleep as a type of idol to run away from the problems. Notice that Jonah doesn't have to wonder whether or not he's disobeying God. He knows he is. He's high-handedly running away and disobeying. Now look at the end of verse 6. Here we get to see the theology of this pagan captain, this non-Jew, non-kind of proto-Christian captain. He says this, Perhaps the God, meaning Jonah's God, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay, let me explain something. The God of Christianity is extremely different than all the gods of every other religion. In the ancient world, there were three things that were very common in their view of God or the gods. Most nations, almost all nations, were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. That's different. In the Bible, there's only one God. God is Trinitarian, but He's only one God. Jesus is not a second God. The Spirit is not a third God. There's only one God, and yet somehow Father, Son, and Spirit are that one God, though distinct, okay? But in the ancient world, there was a lot of polytheism, okay? That's why they're crying out to their gods, plural. Additionally, in the ancient world, that, those polytheistic gods are a lot like humans, right? They sleep around with one another. They get mad at one another. They trick one another. They're, they're, they're just kind of big versions of us, and they don't really care about humanity. Think of the gods in like Greco-Roman mythology. They're up. They're busy. They're partying. They're doing Olympus stuff. They don't care about what's going on with you. You're just some mortal, okay? In the Bible, it's different. God is very unlike us, he is a trinity. He's infinite. He has no body. He's everywhere, okay? He is invisible. He is uh, all-knowing. He's very different than humanity, yet we are very important to him, okay? You see here this pagan theology of the captain. The captain basically says, cry out to your God because the gods don't really care about us. That was a common theme in pagan religion, okay? So there is a, uh, an ancient creation myth known as the Enuma Elish that comes from the ancient Near East. And in that story, the gods create mankind for two reasons. One, to work for them, and two, to not annoy them. That's specifically why we're created in the Enuma Elish, okay? You see this in the Old Testament with the story of Elijah and the prophets of, what's, it's actually pronounced Baal, but the prophets of Baal. You know the story I'm talking about? You've got Elijah who's fighting against these prophets of Baal, and they're basically having a competition. I'll call my God, you call your gods, and we'll see which one is real, and we'll see which one actually cares about you. And the prophets of Baal are screaming out to their gods. They're screaming out to Baal. They're cutting themselves. And what does Elijah do? He mocks them. Amen. Okay? Is it righteous sometimes and biblical to mock false religion? It is. The Bible does it all the time. And Elijah starts saying, 
why don't you cry out louder? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's sipping back and he's got like a coconut drink and he can't hear you. Elijah literally says maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. He's got that little fan on. He can't hear you over that divine fan. There's no way he's going to hear that. Why don't you cry out louder? Because the gods in pagan mythology don't care about humans like the God of Israel does. Now look at verses 7 through 10. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Let's start in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Let me explain what's going on here. In the ancient world, and this is true both in Israel and in other nations, there was this process where if you were trying to get a message from God or the gods, you would basically do a yield version of flipping a coin. Heads means yes, tails means no. Or you would draw straws or sticks, right? So if you've ever had to do a job that nobody wants to do, you draw the short straw. They would do that in the ancient world as well. Sometimes they would reach in a bag that had different color rocks And depending on the color that you drew out of that bag, depended on what God's message was. In the Old Testament, the priest, the high priest, has these uh, two little kind of yes or no stones, the urim and the thummim. And you see these kind of things throughout the Bible. It's what's known as casting lots. Now, the reason that they do casting lots, and this is especially true when it comes to the Bible, is because God is sovereign over every action. Do you believe that? It's not that God is just generally sovereign, but some things happen and God is like, oh man, that's amazing. That worked out really well, okay? Rather, God controls everything. The Bible will say he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Not even a bird falls from the sky apart from his will. Look at Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This text says even when you do what seems to be the most random of activities— rolling a dice, that that number has already been ordained by God before the foundation of the world. That is the God that we serve. He is that sovereign. This is why that they're doing this casting of lots. They know that there's no such thing as not casting lots, that God, either Jonah's God or some of these other gods, one of them has to be sovereign. Now, let me say something about casting lots before we move on. You and I as Christians today should not make decisions by casting lots, okay? Let me say it stronger. You never have casting lots in the New Testament after the Spirit is given, okay? God has given you His Spirit, and He has given you the Bible. He's given you His Word. He's given you everything that you need to know, that the man of God might be, quote, complete and equipped for every good work. So for you to try to make decisions on what job you'll take or who you'll date or where you'll go to college based on casting lots would be testing God. It would not be a biblical practice. Notice all the lot casting in the Bible happens before the Spirit is given and before we have a completed canon of Scripture, so we are not to cast lots today, okay? Now let's look at verses 8 through 9. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Why are they doing this rapid fire question thing? Here's why. Because they are terrified. They are terrified. I'll give you a little story. So 
One time when we were little kids, I'm the oldest of four, we were little kids and we were sitting in the back of the car and my dad was driving, okay? And there was a big spider on the outside of the window, okay? Now, thankfully, it was outside. It was outside. It was not on the inside of the window. It was outside on the window. And as little kids, we're looking at the spider and we're like, man, look at that thing. Tapping the glass, looking at it, and it's this big nasty spider as we're driving down the highway, okay? Somehow it hangs on. I don't know how they do that, but they do. My dad, to try to play a little joke on us, decides that he's going to quickly roll down the window and then up, okay? Not to let the spider in, but just because we're right next to it, and then the window goes down and up, so we will be afraid. He thinks that's funny, okay? So he starts to roll down the window, and I see that happening, so I then try to roll up the window with my control. If you've ever tried to do that, it locks up the window. Somebody's trying to roll it down, and somebody's trying to roll it up, and it locks out, and that big spider crawls into the car, and you would have thought we released a tiger into a preschool. Like the way that we were freaking out and unbuckling and jumping around and trying to get in the front seat, we were, my dad was laughing. He thought it was hilarious. We all didn't think it was hilarious. We all thought this thing was going to eat us. And so we're freaking out. That's what the sailors are doing. They're saying, oh, where are you from? And oh, what's your job? And, and these kind of things. Now, they're not mainly asking a bunch of different questions. Notice that most of their questions center around where he's from. Where are you from? Of what people are you? Where do you come from? Why are they asking that question? Here's why. In the ancient world, there was this belief that gods just belonged over certain nations. So you had the gods of Babylon. You had the gods of Egypt. You had the gods of Assyria. You had the, these different gods were regional. They were territorial. They were just over certain nations. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out Jonah, who apparently is the problem of all this, what nation do you come from? What God have we made mad so that we can appease him and not die out on the ocean? That's what they're trying to do with those questions, okay? And here we get something that's interesting. We get the identity of Jonah, and we get the identity of God, okay? Let's look at this again. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Look at Jonah's identity and God's identity. Let me explain both. Jonah is a bad prophet, but he is not a false prophet. Jonah still identifies with being a Yahweh follower. He still identifies with following the God of Israel, okay? Now, I don't want to make light of sin. Sin is bad. Sin is dangerous. If you continue in unrepentant, hard-hearted, shaking your fist at the sky kind of sin, you will show yourself not to be a Christian, okay? Christians are people who repent. Christians are people who love Jesus and hate their sin. I don't want to make light of sin, but I do want to say this. Notice that Jonah can be in a period of rebellion. He can be in a period of sin and still be in covenant with God. And still be in covenant with God. Still be a Yahweh worshiper. Still be in covenant with God. In fact, that's one of the reasons that God is disciplining him. But here what's interesting is you also get God's identity. You get the identity of God. They're saying, what national God have we offended? And he shows up and he says, no, I don't think you understand. My God's not like your God. My God is the one who controls the sea and the land. He's the creator of everything. He's not just the God of Assyria or the God of Canaan or the God of wherever. He is the God. That's why the mariners are mad at him. Which God do you serve? He's like the one that controls all the stuff, including the water. This is the problem. This is the problem, Jonah. Do you not see? You just said that you serve the God that controls the water. We could really use his help right now. That's what you've got going on. Now look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. If you uh, have got a little pen, underline that phrase, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. By the way, I love that little addition just at the end of verse 10. 
How did they know that Jonah was running from God? Because he told them. Because he told them, okay? Now, here's what I want you to see from verse 10. You cannot run from the presence of God. He's everywhere. God is omnipresent, okay? I saw a Mother's Day card two weeks ago because it was Mother's Day, and here's what the Mother's Day card said. Because God couldn't be everywhere, he made mothers. And I almost lit the card store on fire, okay, for their blasphemy. One, God is everywhere, and two, he needs nothing. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, is what Acts will say, okay? But here you see the concept of what is known as God's omnipresence. God is not bound by space and time. He's not a material being. He's not a creature. He's not like you and I. God is everywhere at once. You cannot run from him no matter where you go. Let me give you some passages. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's uh, the grave, what's underneath the water, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the what? The sea, like Jonah. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. 1 Kings 8.27, when they're talking about making him a temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. God is unlike you. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is Trinitarian. He does not have a body. He is spirit. He is everywhere. He's all-knowing. You cannot run from the presence of God. So let me ask you this question. Where are you attempting to do so? Where in your life are you trying to run from God because of some sin? Or maybe you're just trying to run from His grace. That you prefer your anxiety. You prefer your depression. You prefer your legalism. You prefer God being mad at you. Whereas He's chasing after you and you just keep trying to run from His grace. You keep trying to run from His love. Listen, you cannot get away from God because He's everywhere. As it's often been quipped, where can you run from God angry but to God justified? Would you run from Him? Rather, run to Him. Rather, run to Him. Verses 11 through 12. Then they said to Him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, let me just give you one interesting thing that has nothing to really do with the text, and then I want to explain, because I think verses 11 to 12 are very, very important. One interesting thing this, notice all the language of hurling throughout this passage. In verse 12, you have the language of hurling. Earlier, God hurled the storm at the boat. Now they're going to hurl Jonah overboard, the same language is used in verse 15. And they hurled the cargo overboard in verse 5. A lot of hurling there. Somebody do a, a dissertation on that. Talk about the hurling. Next. Here's what I want you to see in verses 11 through 12. This is what is known in theology, I'm going to give you a big fancy phrase, as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishment, like a penal colony or a penalty. It means punishment. Substitution means somebody in your place. A substitute teacher stands in the place of a teacher. And then atonement are where two parties are reconciled. Here's what you see in this text and throughout the Bible. You and I don't get to sin against the God of the universe and Him just wink at our sin and forgive us. It doesn't work that way, okay? Imagine that there is a serial killer and the judge just lets him go even though he's guilty back in society. What do you think of that judge? He's an unjust judge. 
It's the same way with God. God cannot just forgive you for your sins unless there is punishment, unless there is judgment on someone. Zach, you're putting God in a box. I'm not. God has put himself in that box when he says, quote, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's a book called uh, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. It's written by a guy named Jim Hamilton, who's a biblical scholar. And here is the thesis he puts forward in that book, and I think he's absolutely right. In the Bible, salvation never is given apart from judgment. God judges the evil people in Noah's day so that Noah and his family can be saved. God judges the Egyptians so that the Israelites can be saved. God judges Jesus. He pours his wrath on Christ so that we might be saved. This is the whole idea of killing a sacrifice in the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. You don't get to rebel against God and act like it's no big deal. God is holy, and he demands when you offend his honor that blood must be shed. So either you have to die or something has to die in your place. In the Old Testament, you take an animal, and it dies in your place. You deserve to have your blood shed, but instead the animal has its blood shed. In the New Testament, there's a different lamb that takes your punishment. There's a different lamb whose blood is shed so that you might be forgiven. God doesn't just wink at our sin. He doesn't just forgive us. He forgives us because his justice has been appeased. He forgives us because his wrath has been poured out. It will either be poured out on you if you don't know Christ, or if you do know Christ, it has already been poured out upon him, and there is no more wrath from God to you at all. That's what Jonah's saying. Jonah's saying, I have offended God. That's why this storm is here. God's wrath must be appeased. How's it going to happen? I will be the sacrifice. I will die. By saying, throw me over the ship, he's saying, send me to my death. I can't swim back in the middle of the ocean or whatever it might be. Send me to my death. You get the idea of substitutionary atonement. When we sin against God, we deserve his wrath. So if we don't want his wrath, one must die in our place so that we don't experience the wrath of God. And look at verses 13 through 16. We'll see how the mariners respond to his advice. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Look again at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Notice what they're doing here. God's prophet has already told them how they might find salvation. They might find salvation not in trying harder, but in trusting that one could be sacrificed on their behalf to appease the wrath of God. But what do they do instead? They do human self-effort. They do legalism. They do workspace stuff. Jonah has said, if you want to survive, you throw me overboard and trust that that will appease the wrath of God. Instead, what they do is they try harder. They row harder. And as they row harder, the storm gets worse because that's how human self-effort and how legalism works, okay? Legalism is like quicksand. When I was a kid, by the way, I was really afraid of quicksand. That has turned out to be way less of an issue as an adult than I thought it would have been as a kid. See, also lava. Spent a lot of time hopping pillow to pillow to hop around the lava, have never needed to use that skill, okay? But the thing with quicksand is if you're in quicksand, the harder you try to get out of it, the faster it consumes you, okay? The same is true with human self-effort. The same is true with you trying to save yourself. The same is true with you trying to earn God's love. 
It doesn't work. As you row harder and harder, the storm just gets worse and worse because that's not how God wants you finding salvation. God wants to give it to you as a gift so you don't get the glory He does, okay? I don't know if you have kids. I have two. And my sweet wife uh, does most of the diapers because she is very kind to me. But every now and again, I have to change a diaper that is a number two diaper, okay? Now, here's something that I cannot stand. When the baby tries to help. I'm there trying to clean the baby. I don't need the baby's help. The baby is the one who made the mess. I'm a good father. I don't need that baby's help. I will clean up the baby without the baby's help. When the baby tries to help, they make it worse. They smear it around. They grab the diaper and throw it against the wall. They do all these other things. Salvation is the same way. God does not need your help. You did the mess. You and I did the sinning. God will do the cleaning. God will do the saving. Thank you very much. Now, there's another passage in the New Testament that's very much like this, where instead of listening to God's prophet, they try it on their own. It's in the book of Acts. Let's look together at Acts 27, 23 through 25. Here the apostle Paul is on a ship, and a big storm arises, and everybody thinks they're going to die, and here's what Paul says. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But look what they do, Acts 27, 30 through 32. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. You see an interesting parallel. God has said, I will do the saving. I will protect you. In both of these sea stories, the men try to save themselves. They try to do it on their own. And in so doing, it doesn't work. Okay? In so doing, it doesn't work. Now look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Once they see that they cannot save themselves, they turn to God's mercy. That's the fourth step of this little scenario I gave you earlier. The natural, unbelieving heart of man first is afraid of God. Then we create false religion and superstition and works-based stuff. When that doesn't work, we then just try to save ourselves through human self-effort. Hopefully, though, we get to step four where we realize our only hope is the mercy of God. Our only hope is that He's just that gracious. We cannot earn it. We cannot do it good enough. We must put our hope in Him. Verses 15 through 16. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Notice, by the way, these aren't just a bunch of drunken pirates that are superstitious. When they throw Jonah overboard, the sea stops. It works. He, again, is a bad prophet, but he's not a false prophet. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay? Now, I want you to see something here. We do not know whether or not these men actually become converted. Okay? I think it's unlikely. I think this is a temporary repentance. And by the way, I think the same thing is true with Nineveh. In the Old Testament, you're saved the same way you're saved in the New Testament. Justification by faith in a God who will send or has sent a Messiah. That's how you're saved in the Old Testament. But once you become a Christian or a proto-Christian, a Jew in the Old Testament, you then follow the Mosaic Law. So it's very unlikely that these men move to Israel, forsake all their other gods, get circumcised, worship at the temple, etc. What you're probably seeing here is a temporary repentance. However, we don't know. We don't know whether or not they're truly converted or whether or not they're just temporarily repenting. But let me tell you why it doesn't matter, okay? Let me give you the point of this little story out of Jonah today. You're supposed to see the contrast 
between the pagans and Jonah. Who is supposed to be obeying God? Jonah. He doesn't, though. Who gets it? Who actually fears God? Who actually obeys? Who actually makes vows and promises to do sacrifices and these kind of things? The pagan sailors. That's what you're supposed to see. The pagans who don't know God get it, and Jonah, who's supposed to know God, doesn't get it. You see, there's two ways of reading Jonah, and both of these are very, very important, okay? One way to read Jonah is where Jonah stands as a symbol for the nation of Israel. Israel's commanded to be a light to the nations. Israel's commanded in Genesis 12 that through their descendants will come a Messiah who will bless all nations. But instead of going to all nations, what does Israel typically do? They withdraw from Gentiles. They stay away from those that are unlike them. You even see this in the New Testament, in Galatians, where the Jewish Christians want to stop eating with the Gentile Christians. So there's one way of reading Jonah where Jonah is this symbol for Israel. Israel doesn't want to proclaim repentance to the nations. It doesn't like the lost nations. That's one way of reading Jonah. But let me give you a second way of reading Jonah that a lot of people miss. Jonah is a symbol for Nineveh. Jonah becomes the very thing he hates. He doesn't want to proclaim grace and repentance to Nineveh because they disobey God. So he himself will disobey God. That's what you're supposed to see in that. He becomes the very thing he hates. Jonah isn't just Israel in the book of Jonah. Jonah stands for Nineveh. Now, we're almost done. If you've gotten nothing else, hear what I'm about to say, okay? I want to look again at uh, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Can you think of anybody else in the Bible that uh, is sacrificed to appease the wrath of God? Can you think of anybody else in the Bible whereas Jonah will spend three days in the belly of a fish, would spend three days in the belly of the earth? Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who one time is on a ship and a storm arises and people come down and they say, what are you doing, O sleeper? Don't you care that we're going to die? And because of him and his might and his glory, the sea is calmed and the people are saved. Can, does that sound like anybody at all? Huh? How about Jesus, right? Look here in Mark. Look at Mark 4, 37 through 41. And a great windstorm, notice, same kind of thing here as in Jonah, arose. And the waves, more ocean stuff, were breaking onto the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, like Jonah, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is the greater Jonah. Whereas Jonah has to be sacrificed for his own sin, Jesus is sacrificed for our sin. Whereas Jonah has to be overboard, thrown overboard so that God will calm the sea, Jesus himself calms the sea because he's God. He's Yahweh. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. That doesn't mean he's a second God. It means he is the God, yet distinct from the Father and from the Spirit. What you see here is something miraculous. Jonah is a sacrifice, but it was for his own sin. Jesus is a sacrifice for ours. Whereas Jonah has to cry out to God, Jesus is God. Jesus is Jonah's God. He is Jonah's God. Psalm 107. 
I want to end by reading this psalm. This is a psalm you may not know, but it deals with God's might over the sea. Psalm 107, 23 through 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desire, their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Where are you running from the presence of God? And where do you need to give these things to Jesus who calms the sea? You see, people do a lot of weird stuff with Jonah. They'll say things like, if you don't do evangelism, God will eat you with a fish. Or uh, they'll say, this is how you battle the whales in your life. And they'll give it all these weird metaphorical meanings. Here's a meaning you can actually take from the text. This sea is symbolic for the wrath of God. And the only way to not be under that wrath of God is to have somebody die in your place. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? I'm not asking if you've done church rituals. I'm not asking if you've been in church your whole life. I'm not asking if you're generally a good person. I'm not asking any of that. None of those things will save you. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? With whatever storm is going on, are you asking him to help you, to calm it, to give you peace because you're afraid because that's what he does? Notice that even though the disciples lack faith, Jesus still calms the sea. God is not hindered by your failures. He's still strong and he's still faithful. Let's pray as the uh, guys helping pass out the elements for communion make their way up to the front. Father, we come before you through the Son. And by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and we proclaim that you're great. We proclaim that you are merciful. We thank you for this story of Jonah, which seems to be kind of this strange prophetic text and yet is so relevant to us and to our lives. I pray for everybody in here who's hurting, everybody in here who's struggling, that they might look to Christ, the one who calms the winds and the waves. As we've often said here, I'll say again that weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. We thank you that you're the Savior, that you've provided a means of atonement. I pray for anyone in here who might not know Christ, that today would be the day where they bow the knee, where they just simply stop trying to do it, where they stop trying to row hard against the waves and they just let go, where they trust you. As it's often been said, when we come to God for forgiveness, we must not only repent of our bad deeds, but also relying on our good ones. We love you. We thank you. We thank you now as we partake in these elements of communion. Amen.